As we come to Psalm 2, I don't know why my mind in preparation for this went to this. Uh, It's only a few weeks ago that we gave our lives, or sorry, we, we remembered those who gave their lives for this country, for the freedoms that we enjoy. And as as Christians in America, we, we relish the freedom to worship the one true God, the God of the Bible. I mean, we rejoice in that. Unfortunately, our nation as a whole has, has not really used those freedoms to worship God, but instead uses those freedoms to worship at the altar of self. Rather than submitting to Yahweh, our nation finds itself at the center of a rebellion against our Creator. I mean, this very month, our nation sets aside to celebrate a gender and sexual liberation from Yahweh. We, we don't like what God has to say about His design for sex, and so, as a nation, we keep, seek to cast off God's restraints and make our own rules around those things. And if that isn't bad enough, our nation then seeks to peddle this ideology and pressures other nations, most recently Uganda, to conform to a, the cultural revolution that is at its core anti-Christ. This is who we are as a nation, and as wonderful as our freedoms are, and we, we thank the Lord for those who are fighting and have fought and have given their lives for this country the reality is we are not a Christian nation. And the end of this path, sadly, is unless by the mercy of God He changes the hearts of of the people of this country, is that we will end as every rebellious nation that has come before. We're on a path to destruction. And this is how Psalm 2 starts. It is in vain that the nations rage against Almighty God. We aren't the first nation. We won't be the last nation. If you look around the world today, the vast majority of nations are actually in the same position, raging against God. We think maybe the world was different in the past and in some ways, wouldn't that be great? Because then we would at least be able to say, well, well there's, there's hope then. The world used to be different. We can get back to the good old days, but sadly, there, there's really no good old days. What we see throughout history, all the way back to Israel's history, and even before, are nations raging against the Almighty. Now, we do need to understand a bit of Israel's history before we jump right into this psalm. King David was Israel's second king. He's the author of this psalm. He is described as a man after God's own heart. And during David's reign as king, God made a covenant with David, the Davidic covenant, that from David's offspring would come a king an eternal king, and his throne would be established forever. This is what David was waiting for. 
This is what the nation of Israel was waiting for. This offspring who was the Messiah or, or the anointed one. That's what the word Messiah means. And it's what we will see here in this psalm in just a minute. And Israel was waiting patiently for the Messiah to come. Finally, Jesus has come. The Son of God. He would be the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. He is who they are waiting for as they were sing this song so many years ago. But his kingdom was not of this world, at least, at least not yet. It, it will come. He would come as a humble servant to give his life for sinners. He would be, ra- be raised three days later, defeating sin, death, and Satan. And today he, he reigns as king over his people. As we wait for the final judgment when all things in heaven and in earth are placed under his feet. And then he will reign forever with his people. So Psalm 2, we have a song about raging nations and a reigning sun. It's a messianic psalm. It's a kingship psalm. So we can't really read this psalm without Jesus without having Jesus in view. I mean, it just jumps out at us. It's a song that Israel is singing in anticipation of God's anointed one who is to come. And now it's a song that we sing knowing that the anointed one has come. This has been fulfilled. Really, it's a gospel song. All of the elements of the gospel are present here. We have who God is, who man is, what Christ has done, and then a call to response at the end. And so we see that the story of the gospel of Jesus Christ is not just New Testament theology. It's the storyline of the Bible. It's all pointing back to the person of Christ. David here, the author Again, we're told David's the author from Acts chapter 4 where Peter attributes this psalm to David. And as King David reflects on the world around him and sees the state of the surrounding nation, so you can picture David on the throne of Israel and all the surrounding nations who have fought against Israel and are raging against God and His people. This is, this is as how David is reflecting. And they're not just raging against the people of Israel, but by extension, they're raging against, raging against the God of Israel. And so then he writes about the heart of man. He writes about a sovereign God, and then he writes about a victorious son before calling people to respond in worship or perish. And the gist of the story in this psalm is that the son will reign even though the nations rage against him. The nations will rage, but the son will reign. That's what we want to look at this morning. And to do that, we, if you're not familiar with looking at the psalms, uh, most of our English translations, you'll see these little spaces between some of the verses. And in this psalm, 
you have verses 1 through 3, and then you have like a little bit bigger space before you get to verse 4, and the same thing between 6 and 7 and 9 and 10. Those are stanzas. So it breaks up the psalm for us, and you'll see the same in in other psalms as well. And that's how we're going to approach here this morning, looking at the nations will rage, but the sun will reign. So number one, let's look at the rebellious nations. Verses one through three, why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. So here, Psalm 2 begins with two questions. Why do the nations rage in vain? And why do the people's plots in vain? So the, the questions already presuppose that what they are doing is worthless and ultimately will backfire. Like, their actions against the Lord are completely worthless. They are vain. They are empty. They will never amount to anything. Now notice David first questions the actions of the nations. Now in the Old Testament, again, since the nation of Israel as God's people in the Old Testament. So the, the nations would be any nation outside of Israel. The Gentile nations, whole organized nations. And he says, these nations, they rage. They act in rebellion. It's the idea of a, a violent, noisy crowd. They rage against Yahweh. But it's not just the organized nations, because the next question then asks, why do the peoples or the general population, these are the the, the unorganized people, it's not just the big organized nations as a whole, but it's the general population, they are plotting in vain. Well, what's interesting, this word plot means to murmur or to groan or to grumble, but it's the same word we see in, in Psalm 1, verse number 2. Now, in Psalm 1, verse number 2, it's talking about a blessed man, and it's the complete opposite of what we're reading here in Psalm 2 at the beginning. Because in Psalm 1, verse number 2, it says, His delight is in the law of the Lord, and on His law He plots, He meditates. Day and night, it's the same word. So for the blessed man, the law of the Lord is it's, it's mumbling, it's on his lips. What's in your heart is coming out of your mouth. And for the blessed, the law of the Lord is what he is meditating and murmuring about. But here in Psalm 2, David flips that around and says that the, the peoples mumble or they murmur against God and his word. So the blessed man, he sees God's word and his law and he delights in it. The the peoples, the wicked, they see God's law and his word and they want to cast it off. They see it as oppressive and restraining. Verse number two then illustrates how, how this rage and murmuring take place. But I want to start at the end of verse two and, and note who they are raging and plotting against. 
They are plotting and raging against the Lord and against his anointed. Now, if you, if you are in youth group, I hope our teens would know this. Anytime you see the word Lord in all caps in English translations, it is referring to the name Yahweh, God's proper name, the self-existent one. Okay? So we, and we actually have both of, both Lord is used twice. It's also used in verse number four, and it's not capitalized. It's not the name Yahweh. We'll get to that in a little bit. But, but here he says, they are raging against Yahweh, the king of Israel, and Yahweh's anointed, the one who he has anointed to come. 2 Samuel 5, 7 records David as being the anointed king of Israel. The king of Israel was God's anointed ruler, and he was the leader and representative of God's people. So in one sense, they're singing this psalm thinking about the king, David the king. And the nations are in living in open rebellion to God and his anointed one on the throne, King David. But there's more to that, and we'll, we'll get to that in just a little bit. So that's who they're raging against. So let's go back to the beginning of the verse. The kings of the earth set themselves. The idea here is that they have, they're standing their ground against Yahweh. They dig in their heels to resist him. On a, on a football team, you have offensive, defensive linemen. If you're not familiar with football, look it up on YouTube and watch a game. Offensive, defensive line. The the defensive line, they're doing everything they can to get to the quarterback or to get to the person with the ball in the backfield. They're going to push as hard as they can. And what's the job of the offensive line? They are going to hold their ground. They're going to dig in their heels. They're going to get low so that they can resist with all of their strength that defensive player coming at them. That's kind of the idea here. Yahweh has proclaimed what is true and right. He has told the nations what they should be and do and who they should love and serve, and the nations dig in and resist completely and totally opposed to Yahweh. They're doing everything they can not to yield to him. So he says, look, kings of the earth, they have set themselves. And he says, rulers. The rulers take counsel together. That would be the princes and those beneath the kings that have been established. They, they, they are united. They, they become one together. So this is a collective rebellion from top to bottom among the peoples of the world. And then in verse 3, the rebels speak. And you can see the motive behind their rebellion. Let us burst their bonds apart. There is talking about the Lord and his anointed. Let us cast their cords from us. In other words, we want the freedom to do what we want. We reject The law of the Lord, we reject his anointed one. We want nothing to do with them. His laws are like shackles and fetters. 
And the peoples want so badly to just break free of God and His anointed one. In fact, the, the, the language is rather violent in describing what they want to do to these shackles. They want to burst. Not to be gross, but here, this is really in like Bible commentaries. The word burst in the Hebrew here is like ripping off a scab. Some of you have probably done that before. Ripping it off. And what's going to happen? It's going to start to bleed again. That's the idea. They just want to fling it, cast it away, hurl off God and His anointed one. It's almost like we talked a few weeks ago about fears. Some of you have fear of spiders. If a spider falls on your neck and you're like swatting at it as fast as you can, violently trying to shake it off, get it off of me, this is the actions of the wicked. They see that God's law is restrictive and oppressive, and they want it out of their presence. I'm, I'm reminded as I read this of Romans chapter 1. Romans 1 talks about the wickedness of man, and what does it say? They seek to suppress the truth in unrighteousness. They don't want it in front of them. And if they can get God and his word out of their minds, perhaps it will even remove the guilt that they have. I have a picture here. I thought this is the best, maybe this is the best way for you to see what the heart of man looks like as it rages against God. Is there another one there on there? No? I don't know what happened to the other one. There was another one. It's a really angry looking person, okay? Raging in protest. This is the heart of man against God. Friend, this is your heart against God. Raging in protest. And we might think, well, where does this attitude come from? All humanity is born with it. We are born with a bent against God, an inclination to oppose Him. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 talks about we are dead in trespasses and sins. We are by nature children of wrath. This is our world. Verses 1 through 3. It's a world under the influence of Satan himself who leads the charge of rage against God. So it should come as no surprise to us when we see even our own country throwing off the word of God as if they're shackles, if it's a shackle to be disdained. Not a surprise. Christian, expect nothing less from this world. I, I've heard people say in the last few years, well, I, don't, I just don't understand why, why the culture has to push so hard. Can't, can't we just... Be content to let everyone believe what they believe. Why do we have to try to silence each other? Why, why is the, the, the cultural, cultural push so hard? And really, the answer is no. We, the culture can't just let things be. Not if it's in line with Yahweh and His Word. Not if it's preaching about Jesus Christ. The leaders and the people of our culture are counseling together to resist God. And you might think, well, Dennis, if we just had better leaders, 
We wouldn't have this, we wouldn't have this problem. And, and I, will, I will agree with you that, that leaders are important. Leadership matters greatly. But in our, in our country especially, who chooses the leaders? The people. So the leaders are simply a reflection of the hearts of the people. Brother and sister, lest we become then self-righteous and find ourselves pointing the finger at those wicked people and that wicked nation and those wicked leaders, let's be reminded that the church is not all that different. The culture has influenced us. And though we are saved by grace, we find ourselves every single day committing sin, rebelling against our God. What areas in your life do you find yourself resisting what God wants you to do or what God wants you to be? Well, I know God wants me to give that up. I know he wants me to do this, but I'm just going to dig my heels in here. This area of life is mine. Every act of sin is an act of rebellion. It's a rejection of God and his anointed one. And the only difference between the righteous and the wicked is that the righteous repent and throw themselves under the mercy of God. That's what, that's it. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. So all of this rebellion will ultimately amount to nothing though the nations are raging in rebellion. And the reason it will, it will amount to nothing is because of verses 4 through 6, because of a sovereign God. As the nations rage, notice what verse 4 through 6 says, He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. So God stands sovereign over all things. And his, his reaction to this attempted rebellion, he laughs. He's amused at the thought that he can be resisted. He scoffs at them. He he mocks them to the point that it leaves them stammering. So, again, Psalm 1 and 2 are, are almost like a unit together, okay? So, so think about them as, as being a couple together because there's overlapping themes throughout. We have a contrast. Psalm 1 1. The blessed man does not sit in the seat of the scoffers. So you have, you have those that are sitting in the seat of the scoffers. Then in chapter 2, verse 4, Psalm 2, 4, you have one who sits, it's the same word, sits in the heavens and scoffs. So long before any king or people sat in the seat of the scornful against God, God, the Lord, Yahweh, sat in the heavens. So the contrast is just laughable. He is Lord. And you see, I mentioned uh, if, the, if the word Lord is all caps, it's Yahweh. Well, here it's, it's not in, in verse number four. It's the word Adon, or we think Adonai. It's the master, the one who has ultimate authority over all. 
He laughs. Now today, it's, it's a little bit of a common thought that you, sh- you shouldn't entertain fringe arguments whatever, in whatever sphere, whether it's political or, or whatever the case might be. Uh, because if you engage in the debate of fringe arguments, then you, you give an audience to those arguments. So if you just ignore them, they'll go away. That's, that's kind of the thinking today. But God doesn't operate like that. Notice what, what verse 5 says. Then he will speak to them. Just the action that God would speak to, to these nations that are raging is an indication of God's graciousness even to his enemies. He could just ignore them. What? He laughs. He scoffs back at them. But he could just ignore them and say, you know what, they'll just go away. They'll just fade. But no, he speaks to them. But notice it's, he speaks to them in his wrath. And that seems harsh, and it is harsh. But you know what? Each and every believer here this morning that has put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ has done so because you've understood the wrath of God for sin. So his showing of his wrath and his anger towards sin is an act of mercy on us that we would see the wickedness of our hearts and that we would cry out in salvation. And what happens at the sound of his voice? It strikes terror into the rebellious nations. God doesn't even have to do anything. He just speaks and it demonstrates his power and authority. And they are terrified. And what does God speak in verse number 6? So verse 3, the nations get a chance to speak. Verse 6, the sovereign God gets a chance to speak. And he says, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. So God has established his king. He's installed him, the, uh, the anointed one, the promised Messiah, And just as a side note, God alone establishes the kings in their place. Whatever ruler is over whatever land, whatever political person is in office today, God has allowed them to be in that position. Not one ruler is in their position except that God has decreed it. And the one king that all other rulers find threatening to their power is the one that Yahweh describes now as my king. This is my king. Again, David is the king of Israel as he writes this. But there's there's another king that would come from his offspring that both David and the nation is looking for. Now it talks about here, my, he's going to set my king on, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. So David, in 2 Samuel 5, 7, he's installed as the king of Israel. And his first conquest, his first defeat, uh, 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 victory I should say, as king was taking Jerusalem, which was known as Zion which was also came to be known as David's city. It was his first conquest. And it was on the hill of Zion that the temple was established and God's presence where he would meet with his people. 
which is why it talks about it being his holy hill. It was his set-apart place of worship for his king then to rule and reign. Who will resist this? And the answer is no one. All that God plans will come to pass. So as we are the created image of God, I believe that we are created with an awareness of our place in creation. There's several verses that talk about this. We don't have the time to get into it. But we're created with an internal self-awareness, understanding that there is a God, that we are not self-existent. And yes, Romans 1, we try to suppress this reality for many different reasons, but I don't think anyone can truly shake it. There is someone above us. There is a creator, a king that we are answerable to. I mean, do we really even want to believe that we're just accidents in, in a cosmic bang? What, what value does that place on our life? How are we any different than the bugs that we step on? The summer flowers that many of you have planted but in three months will be thrown into the trash or out in the back fields. Do we really want to believe that we're just some accident? Belief in a sovereign God who is creator brings rest. It brings peace. It brings purpose. Look, today you know your thoughts on God. Maybe you're sitting here and you're finding yourself raging against God. And it might be coming out in in raging against the things that I'm even saying right now. Maybe it comes out in raging against the things that your parents are teaching you from God's Word or the teachings of the church. But if these words offend you, it's not, it's not me, it's not your parents, it's not your church. You are offended at God. You are raging against Him You are in rebellion against him. And I can tell you here, it will not stand. God has set his king. And the irony of all of that, in our rebellion, the irony of it all is we want to live in peace and love and joy and contentment and all of these things. We want that. These are the things that we were created to desire. That's why we we have the desire for them. Yet we cast off the God who can give us all of these things. Like we want all of those things, we just don't want the God that comes with it. And yet this will never work. God laughs at the person who thinks they can achieve these things apart from him. He's installed his king who is representative of his authority among the people. And now in verses 7 through 9, the king is going to speak. We have a victorious son, verses 7 to 9. So rebellious nation, sovereign God, victorious son. Verse 7, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage. And the ends of the earth your possession, you shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. So note here, as we start out, 
The difference between the Lord speaking to the wicked and how it causes terror. And now, as the son is recounting, or the king is recounting the words of the Lord to him, verse 7, the Lord said to me, so you have this contrast, the Lord speaks to the wicked, causes terror. The Lord now speaks to his king, and you have this relational, comforting effect And what is the anointed king recounting or recalling to his mind that Yahweh has said to him? You are my son. Obvious messianic implications. Okay, this is talking about Jesus, divine son who is to come. Perhaps God has referred to David in, in this way at some point, in these comforting words. We don't know. Uh, because nothing in Scripture is recorded as God referring to David as son, but he does refer to his offspring as son. But at the time, Israel was looking forward to this as the future Messiah. Hebrews 1.5 and Hebrews 5.5, you quote, quote this verse here, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And it does it both times in describing Jesus Christ. So those are two references you can jot down and look at later. The nation of Israel is looking forward to this anointed one. We are looking back. Today, he says, I have begotten you. Here's another indication that, that this is referring to a, a divine son, a, a, a son who is God himself. It's the word begotten. The word begotten speaks of two beings from the same essence, cut from the same cloth. I've said this before, but I'll say it again. Uh, there, there are, uh, spe- specifically, the religion of Islam, their number one tenet, Allah has neither begotten nor has begat. Because why, why do they say that? Because they know for God to beget a son, it would make that son God. That's one of their core tenets. Here's the word used to describe the son. He is, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Perhaps this is pointing even forward to Revelation chapter 1 and verse number 5 where it talks about Christ being the firstborn from the dead. Acts chapter 13, verse 32 to 33 Here's one other place that this psalm is used as Peter is speaking and he says, and we bring you good news that, the God, that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus as also it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. I think, I think this, this portion in Acts here helps us understand what today means. Some have said today means Jesus coming in the incarnation at his birth. But I think it's talking here about Jesus' resurrection. This is the day that I have begotten you. And Revelation 1.5 talks about Christ. He would be the firstborn from the dead, leading a new creation. So the importance of this messianic psalm really can't be underestimated. What else has Yahweh said to his son? Notice verse number eight. 
Ask of me. It's the picture of a father waiting for his child to ask for something good. Like, son, just ask me, and I want to give it to you. And what's the request? Ask to make the nations your heritage, your possession, your inheritance. The same nations that rage against us in in verses 1 and 2, he says, I will give them to you as your possession. And actually, I will give you the ends of the earth. Well, all of that will be under your own ownership. And we see this phrase, of the earth, in verse number two, the kings of the earth. And now he says, the ends of the earth. And what's the whole point that he is making here? Look, their kingship will end, and you will possess it all. It will all be yours. It is your promised inheritance. Verse 9, the father continues to speak to the son, and the son is recalling this to mind, and he says, you are my son. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessels. You will conquer these nations. You will trample and shatter them with a rod or a scepter. You think of a king has a scepter, a a scepter of iron. So the kingly imagery is so vivid. So is the creator versus created imagery. You will dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. You know, the potter and the clay, the creator and the created. This language is now attributed to the Son, which again points us to Jesus being the creator. He is God in flesh. This is what they were waiting for. Yahweh laughs because his son will be victorious over the nations and he alone will reign. And so here from verse 9, we connect all the way back to verse number 1 and we ask the question again, why do the nations continue to rage when the son will come out on top at the end? It's vain. But sin blinds us to the truth, doesn't it? The goal of Satan in Genesis 3 was to flip the created order. The the created order as God established it, God over man. What does Satan do? He flips that and says man over God. We desperately want to set our own rules. We want to be the kings. We want to be victorious, but only the Son is truly the King. Now what's sad about the psalm, as many Jewish people through the millennia now have have sung this, have used it as part of their worship, today our Jewish friends still wait for the victorious Son. They have not recognized that Jesus is the fulfillment of Psalm 2. Partly because they don't don't understand that the Son has two comings. The first coming was not at all what they expected. He came humbly. He came into this world in a manger, lived as a carpenter before ministering three years. 
until he was rejected and put on a cross. What the Jewish people were waiting for was verses 8 and 9. Earthly domination over the enemies. That's what they wanted. Yet the plan of God had something more to be accomplished. The enemies of sin and death were raging. And through the cross, sin was dealt with. Death was defeated in the resurrection. And today, Ephesians 1, 20 through 21, here, here's what Paul tells us Jesus is doing right now. Jesus is seated at the Father's right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and, and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Wow. I mean, like, this, this is who our king is. But you know what's more amazing? Paul continues in chapter 2 and verse 6 of Ephesians. And he says, For all those who by faith alone look to Jesus for their salvation, God has raised us up with him. And he seated us, believers in Jesus Christ, with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So we share in his victory. We will reign with him. The story of this song is the story of the gospel. The creator made Adam as his kingly representative here on earth. Adam fails miserably. He was the first rebel among all the rest of the rebels to ever be born. And the world lives in rebellion to his creator. But the creator sent another kingly representative. We might call him a second Adam. Jesus, who has fulfilled perfectly what we have failed to do. He is the king, and we all must submit to him. Which is why verse 10 starts out saying, Now therefore. There's a call to response in verses 10 through 12. And really, he says, look, there, there's only two ways to live here. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear. Rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish in the way. For His wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are those who take refuge in Him. So he starts out, kings and rulers, of verse number two. You need to be wise. You need to be warned. You have a choice, but it's not much of a choice. Either serve Yahweh, verse 11, and kiss the son. This is, this is the idea of, it's like an act of homage or submission before a king. You're showing love and appreciation. You're submitting yourself. So instead of setting yourself against Yahweh and his anointed, you should embrace them and join them. Because like the father, the son will show his anger in judgment. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way. Again, tie in real quick back to Psalm 1.6. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. The entire path of the wicked is going to perish. And now you come to the end of Psalm 2 and the warning is submit to the son out of love or you will perish as the way of the wicked is destroyed. 
You will be swept up in that judgment. And then you have the last phrase of Psalm 2, acts as a bookend to the beginning of Psalm 1. Psalm 1, 1, blessed is the man. Psalm 2, 12, blessed are all who take refuge in the Son. The Son provides salvation from destruction. The Son is a haven of safety in the judgment of the wicked. And he says, all, all who take refuge will be saved. This is true wisdom. Taking heed to the warning. Fleeing to the anointed Son for salvation. What is David communicating to his people in this psalm? Look, there is a greater judge. There is a more powerful king than any king of the earth. Yahweh is to be feared because he will not delay his hand of patience forever. So, submit to the Son. Friend, Jesus is our only refuge. He's the only one that can save us. True blessing comes as we flee to him, as we trust in him. Pay homage to the Son, not with flattering words like, well, yeah, I believe in Jesus, but with a life that is lived in love and submission to Him. Jesus isn't a Sunday-only King. He is a Sunday through Saturday King. And He expects daily submission to Him in our lives. You know the path you're on. I don't know your heart. No one sitting next to you knows your, your heart. You know the path that you're on, and the warning here is to be wise and be warned. The path of the wicked is headed for destruction. It will perish. You can get on this path and be spared, but you must bow the knee to Jesus. You must recognize him as king and Lord because you don't want to be with the wicked when the judgment comes. As we start to wrap up here, sometimes I hesitate to say that because then it sets expectations of how quick I'm going to wrap up. <laughs> Two of the greatest apostles use this passage. And you're always thinking in a sermon, like, how does this apply to us? But when you have two of the greatest apostles that use this psalm, and record it for us in the book of Acts, it's like, how can you go wrong with using their application for us even today? The apostle Peter uses this text. We looked at a couple of those verses in Acts chapter 4, verses 23 to 31. John and Peter are released from prison. And what were they in prison for? For preaching Jesus. And the, the religious leaders warn them, and they say, hey, we're going to let you go. But don't speak in the name of Jesus any longer. And Peter recalls the words of Psalm 1 and 2. Psalm 2, 1 and 2. And, and he's reminded that the peoples of the earth will rage against God and his anointed. And all who would follow the Son. And so in his prayer to God... He thinks about that, and he thinks it shouldn't be a surprise that we were arrested. And here's what he prays in Acts 4.29. And now, Lord, consider their threats, the threats of the wicked, the raging nations, 
And what does he say? Grant your servants, grant that your servants may speak your word with all boldness. Under threat of the raging nations against himself and his life, Peter says, look, I recognize that this is what the nations do. This is what the peoples do. Give me boldness to speak the truth about the Son and the sovereign God who reigns. It's a source of strength and comfort to him and I think to anyone who would call themselves a Christian. The second apostle to use this was Paul in Acts chapter 13. Paul enters the city of Antioch and he speaks to the Jewish people in the synagogue and he unfolds for them God's plan that there would be an anointed offspring who would come from the line of David. And he uses this very psalm to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ and to call people to repent and believe in Jesus. Psalm 2 is a gospel song that unfolds God's plan. So I think a second point of even just application for us, look at your life. Examine it in light of this psalm and ask, am I with the raging nations? Am I with the reigning sun?